the Examine Life podcast. Alan, Steve, and John. Guys, welcome. So today, what are we doing? We're going to talk about Plato's The Allegory of the Cave. What is the allegory of the cave? And perhaps what is the allegory about? Well, I can uh, start with a quick overview from what I've gathered, uh, and then we can expand, give Alan some time to like shed light on more details. But the allegory of the cave to to me and what I've found so far is it's a story, um, of course, an allegory, and an allegory is figurative language. It is a, a, a grandiose metaphor, if you will, and it's a story that likens a, a situation, uh, a grand situation, to something else, right? And so we have this, we have these prisoners, and they are chained, um, immobile, facing. Uh, they're inside of a cave, facing a wall. Um, and they are chained and they cannot move their heads from side to side. But behind them, there's a fire glowing, right? And um, there's also another wall behind them. Um, so it kind of like, um, well, basically, people will come by, walk by with different objects um, and uh, animals, different objects, and they'll cast shadows on the wall. And these prisoners just know of these shadows. So they cannot see the fire behind them. They cannot see the, the middle, you know, mid uh, height wall behind them. All they can see is what's standing up over the wall behind them. And then, of course, what shadows are cast on the wall before them. And so their reality becomes this... Um, basically is is developed through this these reflections these shadows they see on the wall and that becomes their truth right that is that is all they know really um, they have discussions they start to get into nomenclature starting to name things uh, define things categorize things based on whatever shapes and movements uh, but then one prisoner breaks free and the prisoner breaks free and he comes out um, of the cave and into the light and in the beginning um, he is uh, very very disoriented the light burns his eyes, causes severe pain, and he is very uncomfortable and perhaps frightened. As he experiences time outside of the cave, he starts to be, his eyes adjust and he starts to be able to see uh, reflections in the water, um, uh, not just shadows. He still sees shadows, but then he starts to notice the reflections in the water, which are obviously different than the shadows on the wall, because shadows on the wall are just black, whereas reflections on the water, there will be colors. Uh, reflecting. Eventually, he can actually see the real objects and starts to understand those like an actual tree or, um, uh, or a duck on the water, right? He can actually see the, the real life animal with all its colors, all its beauty, uh, um, and its actual movements. So he gets super excited. Pretty soon he can see everything. He can even look at the sun. And so he becomes very excited. And he wants to go back to help the, uh, the other people in the cave. He wants to tell them that what they're experiencing isn't all that there is. Um, and so he goes back and uh, just like, um, uh, well, I'll stick to summary. Uh, he goes back and he explains to them that these shadows on the wall aren't really the truth. It's not what you, you know, there's so much more that you need to see. You need to come out of the cave. And he starts to say that those aren't real. Those shadows aren't real. And the people grow, well, irritable. And they think that his journey caused him to go crazy or to, to lose his mind or to just to be dumb. He lost his knowledge, you know, his experience in the cave. He, he himself is kind of lost in the cave. He can't really recognize the shadows as he had before. And eventually he tries to convince them, no, 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 this is not the truth. 
and they become hostile. They become hostile and eventually kill him. Um, so that is that is kind of my summary of the story. I hope I didn't leave too much out. Um, but then obviously there's more to it. And I'll, I'll ask Alan um, to give us some background to where this story comes from. I think that was an amazing summary and I could not have done anything close to that, except for the fact that um, he actually, he, um, he runs away from the light to begin with and the people from the outside drag him back out to, to, to like physically get used to the light. They coerce him to go back out to see it. And they say, look, you're actually looking at the truth that's in the text itself. And then he does finally see it. Then he goes back down. Then he convinces the people. Then they kill him thinking that he's, you know, some crazy Messiah kind of thing. <clears throat> okay. So I've a bit of a dilettante, uh, like philosophy and history. So a bit of background history on the text. It comes from a book called The Republic, which uh, uh, Plato wrote. Um, and his idol and mentor and teacher was Socrates, who was supposedly the first kind of real philosopher in history. Um, Socrates was well known. He called himself a gadfly, which is like you know a fly that would bite the the, the behinds of a of a horse to annoy it. He, he'd wander around town and annoy people, and he'd ask people questions about basic questions about you know what is good, what is bad, you know what is courage, and um, he he'd, he'd, find, he'd he'd get them to like answer the question but finally come to a logical logical conclusion and sort of prove to them that they never understood what they knew in the first place which was kind of his his role in kind of the town as he saw it eventually um the people kind of got sick of him and they put him to death which is actually i think part of a, a tribute to the death of the men in the cave so they say there's a bit of a connection there um so I think Plato was quite, um, you know, what would you say? I can't think of a word, disheveled. He was a bit upset about, like, Athens was run by a democracy at the time. And so the democracy put uh, Plato to death for, you know, annoying people. He was put to death for atheism and misleading the youth. So he was, you know, asking people questions which they took um, literally. So the main point that sort of came out of it was, um, oh, actually there was a war called the Peloponnesian War and it was against uh, Sparta and Athens and it was an oligarchy against a democracy. And the oligarchy, Sparta, beat uh, Athens, the democracy, and Plato ended up hating democracy. So a big part of the book is him kind, you know, he's kind of trying to say demonise democracy for one thing, but the book starts out and he kind of, he asks the question, what is justice? And it takes like 200 pages to find out, you know, what is justice? They keep going backwards and forwards going, what is justice? And then Plato eventually sort of said, uh, uh, sorry, Socrates eventually says, well, what we'll do is we'll, we'll make a metaphor. We'll create a city. We'll, we'll create the perfect city of justice. And we'll have that as a metaphor for the humans individual. And, and we'll see if we can make the perfect republic a justice a just republic and um we use it as a metaphor for how a human can be just and this particular part of the of the text is about kind of the the leader it's kind of what do you call it the enlightened kind of philosopher leader who would take control of this society that is pretty much the background of the whole thing so yeah yeah I won't get much further than that 
I think that Plato was really uh, advoc advocated for a society that was governed not just by rich or elite people, but by superior philosophers. He wanted a set, a series of philosopher kings, mm. and he definitely did not yeah. agree with democracy. And for yeah. some of the reasons, I, I mean, I, see, this is the problem. I can see why. Have, have these ideas, you know, you can push people away, but I've felt that way for a long time, mm. even before mm. I read this and got some research done. I've felt that way a lot, just from the, uh, just from the power of the media in the United States and our political system. I'm like, dude, people should not be like, all these people shouldn't be choosing our leaders. Like, and I know that sounds really lame uh, and, and discrediting and disrespectful. And I don't mean it in that way at all, but I just, I feel like when people can be drugged around by their tails and, and, you know, they're looking onto the wall of the cave and the shadows are being fit, filled. Uh, they're being filled with these shadows, these, I don't want to say illusions, but yeah, illusions. And uh, then they're making choices of who's going to run for the benefit of the masses. Like that to me sounds crazy. Like, but at the same time, I could flip it and say, it is a very romantic and uh, inclusive uh, process that gives people a sense of ownership. And I do think that's beautiful too. But I definitely agree with Plato in some ways. Now, I wouldn't say just philosopher kings, but I would say highly educated spiritually like ethical really highly ethical people but how would we you know flesh it out how would, I'm, I'm, how would I'm, we get into that set of of leaders to pick from right so um anyways yeah go ahead the, the the modern uh comparison to the cave is just being the basic cinema you know we sit in the cinema sitting there you know daydreaming our lives away imagining we're seeing the truth when we're not really seeing the truth we're just seeing lines on on, on a screen so we're pretty much doing it to ourselves daily as it is. I have a lot wrong with the, the topic of the Republic, which is a long kind of conversation. So maybe we can leave that for another, another podcast, but I'll let you guys continue. Let, let me ask you guys this. Um, Plato wrote this shortly after Socrates was executed. Is that right? Okay. Okay. So the period is, I got confused about this. There's three periods of Socratic, uh, sorry, of Platonic writing. The first period they say, the first third was pretty much all Socrates or as, much, as close to Socrates as, as Plato could get. The second period was a mix between the two philosophies and the third period was Plato finding his own ground. So Plato had this philosophy of the forms and this is a very important thing to understand because everything you see around you is, is fake. It's not real. It's, it's a resemblance of, of an absolute form in heaven. So you think of a tree that tree isn't a real tree. It's just a representation of an absolute tree, which belongs in the ether somewhere. So it's just, you think of things like beauty and love and goodness and all these kinds of things. Plato believes in, this is where I get sort of offside. Like he believes in absolutist kind of, um, what do you call it? Ethics. I believe in uh, relative relativist ethics. He believes there is one truth for everything. And he believes yeah, he has the answer pretty much and he can go and find it basically based on geometry what well, the forms are all kind of based around Pythag pythagorean kind of geometry yeah well i can understand that plato would be pretty pissed off if uh, you know his great leader like someone that mm. was quite just mm. um is being executed by the masses and it's kind of like democracy i think socrates was basically said democracy is is like a ship um, that you need one captain, right? And if too many people are a captain of that one ship, you know, who's making the decisions, who's educated enough, who's aware enough, who's what intentions are guiding that ship. 
Uh, so mm. I don't know, democracy, I imagine that if that's the case, if, if Plato had just experienced Socrates being executed, well, then I imagine he would have lost total faith in the system of democracy when you have um, the tyranny of the tyranny of the majority. I think uh, John he also Locke, saw he also saw that um, the democracy was well and truly destroyed by an oligarchy. So he saw a Spartan regime of highly militarized, you know, individuals that are like based under like a communistic state. And he's going, well, they kicked our ass, you know, they, they must have had something on top of us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we, need, we need to fucking get into the regime and, you know, my problem, I've been reading more on, into it and it's kind of, he's kind of placing people, you know, it's not like he's giving people choices or options. It's kind of like you have to play your role in society. And to, I, th- I, think, I think the final answer to the question of justice is um, justice is people doing, you know, their part in society and leaving other people to do their part in society. That is the final kind of answer in the Republic. Yeah. Okay. Well, he kind of, he kind of assigns these places to people, which is yeah, what gets to me. Yeah. Well, I guess the problem, like, you know, touching on what John said previously, the problem with democracy, that if, if everyone has a different belief system, it kind of fractures the country because you haven't got this nationalistic identity that keeps everybody together. And then if everybody has, you know, like has that same way of thinking, then you can achieve more that way. Right. Uh, the other thing I think is really important about the allegory of the cave is to remember that the shadows are illusions, you know, but they're considered to be real. So, you know, everything about those shadows, yeah, the people that were chained and they were chained and it's, I think they shouldn't be called people. I think they should be called prisoners. Um, the prisoners in the bottom of the cave, looking at the, looking at the shadows, you know, giving them attributing names um giving them identities thinking that they were literal truth uh i think that's a really important point to remember because it's it it gives us some context about uh why they have so much conflict you know internal and external conflict when the prisoner comes back and says that's not real yeah well that's the thing is and that's the reality right so everybody's reality is the truth um despite like despite what others believe so the prisoners or slaves are uh those those are their whole life they're they're chained from childhood and they they see these and they make meaning of them and these meanings are real they give them names and they become Mm. uh recognizable um symbols and shapes and stuff like this and to them it is the truth so this is this is kind of like a looking at what is reality right like what is real to me might not be real to you so i you know um i wouldn't say okay they're illusions yes but they are truths um amongst the uh prisoners as well and i think that i think i personally think i mean i believe that plato was trying to touch on this right he's trying to get us to think about like well what is really real um Mm. but um yeah, but obviously, so let's look at the cave. The cave, what does the cave represent? It's a dark, lightless, dingy, uh, oftentimes, I wouldn't say lifeless because we know that some bacterias and plants and things can grow in caves, <laughs> but they are, it's lightless, colorless, dingy, uncomfortable. And uh, mm. and uh, yeah, um, and no one really wants to live there, at least not anymore me- since the caveman days. 
it's just it's just a literary device for him to you know uh you know demonize that form of lifestyle and um you know put his style of lifestyle as the way to go so i i i uh sort of say they aren't prisoners they are people because we're talking about a society it's just a metaphor so he's saying the majority of the people out there have their eyes closed they're not going to see what's going on and there's only a few people out there that are going to be able to open their eyes one day and see what's really going on around them and all the crap that's happening um but for me the cave yeah it's it's like plato is known for being a very good writer he he He's uses lots of um, literary techniques, and you know, I, I kind of take the cave as just like a you know primordial sort of human understanding of like the underworld of hell of ignorance. You know, um, it's kind of forcing on us like it's. I've written something here like forced by our customs and indoctrinations to be prisoners of society, either through political manipulations or ignorance. The individual does not question basic truths. That's kind of what I wrote there. Yeah, yeah and I think definitely. that. I definitely think that like um, he painted the pictures, right? He uses the the prisoners. Um, he calls them prisoners. Um, but yes, do we choose our own prison? I think mm. that's part of what he's talking about is that people typically choose the prison that they put themselves in um, and they just become complacent and they accept it as the reality. And so it is an, a metaphor um, for uh, self-imprisonment, but it could also be a literal imprisonment political. as well. Well, yeah, but that's the literal, right? Like it's the political, mm. it's a, a media dominated uh, indoctrination, um, all these different types of forced, uh, yeah. I guess, imprisonment, but it's not like chains, right? So the chains represent the the immobility, the, 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 the lack of freedom. Um, and, you know, their, their heads cannot look left or right. So also is they're bonded by their, their mm. own movements and their vision is, bond, is, is uh, also trapped. So yeah, it's mm. a metaphor. You're talking to a guy that loves metaphor and figurative mm. language. So everything to me is that. So I would agree with you, but also say that it could go both ways. It could be actual prisoners or it could be self-induced imprisonment, right? By through our own mm. beliefs, like who we believe and what we choose from to the, follow. From the book, from the book play, they kind of says only a few people can become the enlightened philosopher. So he admits that the average vulgar human won't reach that state. So the majority of people will just be the vulgar masses, you know, the common people. There's going to be uh three tiers of guardianship and then there's going to be the enlightened despot whatever the fuck you call that kind of thing so i want to i want to it's a very hierarchical society i want to like you guys i i have the same kind of ideas but like i want to flip this on its head for a second and say maybe um maybe let's look at it from the other point of view and maybe let's critique plato you know plato's cave so obviously the cave is is a is a symbol of ignorance and the sun is a is a symbol of illumination and um, enlightenment, right? And knowledge, okay? The sun being the bright light of knowledge and the torch of knowledge. What, like, you know, if people are in their cave and their ignorance and they're, they're watching the shadows and they have their reality and they're content with that and they, they have their world, does everyone need to be, and, and everyone need to be a philosopher? Does everyone need to hold the torch of, of philosophy? Does everyone need to come out of that cave of, of ignorance and become Plato, like, 
there's a lot of people that just simply aren't interested in, in learning. And there's a lot of people that are simply interested in working and perhaps making money. I don't know. Are we, um, should we judge, you know, like, I feel like in a way Plato's kind of critiquing them and saying they're the ignorant ones. They're the prisoners. The fact that they're framed as prisoners and ignorant kind of already has a negative connotation to those individuals. So I don't know. I want to throw that at you, at you guys and see, give it, give it to you to chew on and then see what you guys come up with. Okay. I love that. And, and I want to ask Plato, how the hell did you, how the hell do you have so much time to sit down and write a book like the Republic without the people that do all the moving of the products that do all the farming that live in ignorance? I think Plato depends on the cave. I think any philosopher depends it is out of necessity. There is no way to become enlightened, I believe, without, well, I shouldn't say that. Let me take that back. But there's no way to be able to sit there and think about all of these things and ideas without someone else doing a lot of hard work for you. Because I'll tell you what, man, like he's got to eat. He's got to get clean water. He needs someone to bring him pens and quills and ink. Who's doing that? Plato's not doing that. He's in a different position. So um, I'm not going to totally criticize him, but this is the thing about these great thinkers are these, you know, everybody's flawed from the people in the cave to the people at the top, like Plato. Plato is forgetting that he has, he's lucky that he has, um, or blessed, he has a position of power, of, um, of leisure, which so many people in the world will never have. So um, I agree with what he's saying. I love his ideas. And man, it's opened up a lot because you can use this cave to look at everything from education to religion, to culture, to social norms, to the media. I mean, you can, I, I love it. I love it. But I'm a skeptic. I always have been. And I, I look at Plato and I say, okay, man, yeah, I, I love your story, bro. I do. However, how did how did you have the time to do that? Yeah, and before let, let me just bump in, jump in here really quickly because really you're just adopting the ideology of Plato, right? And so we're saying that his ideology of being this type of person is is maybe superior or more enlightened. And I don't know if that's I don't know if we can I don't know if we can blanketly say that's true. Okay, this is where the the rationalist um what was it? Um, relativist kind of thing sort of really gets on my nerves. You know, people that say that there is one, one truth, one good, one everything, you know, it kind of it relies on a higher power to bestow that upon the rest of the world. The, the relativist kind of concept sort of comes from a cultural sort of situation. If you read further into the, into the, um, what's it called? The Republic, it, um, it comes to a point where, you know, there's the enlightened philosopher who, who rules the society. Then there's three kinds of people of guardians. There's gold, there's uh, silver, there's bronze. And there's, you know, some people are guardians who are the soldiers and defenders, but these people don't have possessions. They, they live life of meager, you know, you know, what do you call it? Very, um, very meager sort of possessions. They don't have anything. The people who live in the society actually still get to live the life of like capitalism or whatever. They still get to do their trade and do everything they have to do to keep the society going. So they, they still keep happy in that sense. They're still allowed to live their life the way they do it. But I think that the way Plato sees it is people are born 
a certain thing. So if you're born strong, you're a soldier. If you're aggressive, you're a soldier. If you're born with a particular, I don't know, ability, that's what your skill is going to be. So he's kind of setting everyone in that set. But he also says that it's the responsibility. It kind of goes back to the main question of the whole of the whole book is what is justice and what is good? And he's trying to say there is an absolute good and there is an absolute justice. And I do love that appeal. I love the fact that there is an absolute good. That would be great. But he says that for the righteous man, for the righteous philosopher king to fulfill his duty, he has to go down into the dark. Like if you read the the start of the Republic, Socrates comes down from the hill and he comes into the marketplace. And that's, that's a big part of the the metaphor. So it's, um, Every, every time there's a new philosopher king who, who has bestowed that place, he has to take time and go down into the, into the public, into the agora, which they would have called it in the days, and um, try and enlighten the people. So no matter how he doesn't want to do it, I think it even says in, 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 in the allegory here, you know, he doesn't want to go back. He doesn't want to go back. But it's part of his responsible ethical duty of a good citizen to go back and try and educate He's not going to be able to educate everyone, but he might catch one or two here and there. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. Um, yeah, like I, you know, I, I now I want to read the whole Republic, but I, uh, for the sake of this conversation, I'll stick to the K. But it's I'm becoming more and more intrigued now. It is this is a thick, thick, uh, rough reading. Um, it's going to take a lot of investment, but no, I believe that. And I think that's awesome that he at least acknowledged that earlier on that he himself, uh, needed to go into the darkness to understand or to help others, you know, right. And that's the responsibility of a true leader, um, is, you know, through our individuality, we still, are. depend on the other right like we we like i said plato couldn't sit down and write this book without the others without the people he's talking about but the, the acknowledgement of needing to go enter the cave to be amongst those people maybe to understand them and to uh i guess enlighten them um is is really good so i'm, I'm glad you brought that up because i like i said i i don't know all the story of the republic and i kind of regret that now um but I still got some time to live, so I'll get it done. There's another another comparison with the metaphor when um, I forgot what it was. It was it was when he goes out when the, when the prisoner goes out to the light and he sees it for the first time and he's shocked. Um, I, I read through Perseus.com, which sort of annotates all of it, and he says that is kind of like a reference to the Socratic method. Socrates would catch someone on the street and he would um you know ask them the question what do you think justice is and when they would answer you know justice is um you know helping out your friends and harming your enemies kind of thing and then he would ask them questions to, to the logical conclusion and he would destroy their mind they'd end up just going i can't handle this they'd walk off and it was in this perseus.com that said that that seeing the light is almost what socrates was doing to people at the time like Plato yeah, was using that, it as that's yeah, fantastic. Metaphor. And I can see how that can happen. And I can see how that can happen in the modern day. You know, if you're looking at the, if you're looking at your illusions and their truth to you, you know, if it's conformity in culture. If you're being conditioned to, you know, maybe buy a house and get married and have a kid and adopt the, the cultural normalities that, you know, is, is what everybody's doing. And then people are coming up to you and saying, Oh, well, you know, is that really the right thing to do? It's very, very, very difficult to just disregard, throw away uh, an ideology that you've had for a whole year, especially if it's been printed 
on you, you know, some by your, you know, indelibly by your parents or society. And then to, to, to people to say, well, you know, if you adopt this other ideology, you'll be more enlightened and you'll be a thinker and you'll be a, a different type of person. You know, do you really expect that they're going to throw away? You know, I, I've had a friend say to me, say, Steve, for you to, for me to do what you're telling me to do, I've got to throw away everything that I've worked for. And I think that's how people feel uh, in, in, in the sense of acquiring wealth, in the sense of status, in the sense of learning skills. It's not easy to become, um, let's say, you know, not, not restricted or not uh, connected to society's uh, normalities or pressures. So I don't know. I think it's, I think it's worth thinking about, you know, like, how how can you adopt how do we adopt an ideology how does it serve us uh, are we really just conforming and when is the right time to discard that uh, that ideology and how do we deal with an ideology like how do we deal with our own when ours is being threatened by someone else well, the funny thing with the socratic method is he would he would get someone who was like a politician or something and who was quite wise and who thought that they knew everything and he would ask them the basic question and then he would take them down the road and like they'd say justice is harming your enemies and then like he would make them answer the question and contradict themselves he wouldn't say it themselves he go but but what, what do you think if, if you were to do this or if you were to do that and at the end of the dialogue he would make the person contradict themselves and it would be just like this revelation that like holy shit i had no idea what the hell i believed my whole life kind of thing and there's a famous saying um uh the delphiate oracle said that socrates is the wisest man who ever lived and Socrates was, was kind of like shocked by that. He's like, how can that be the case? So he, he wanted the world. I think he went to the, to the Oracle at Delphi and he's like, why do you say this? Why, why, would, why would I be the most wisest person in the world? And he says, it's because that you acknowledge that you don't know anything. You acknowledge that you don't know anything. You're just always asking questions. You're always searching. You don't pretend to have the answer. Yeah. And I think that this, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. Um, you know, I think that, okay, so Socrates was eventually killed um, for his, for this, this demeanor of his, this going out and questioning and disrupting society. And there comes a point where like, um, I don't, okay, wise, like what, I mean, extremely knowledgeable. Yeah, I would say so. But wisdom, I think, comes from a completely different place. And I think that wisdom, you would know that you were trapping these people against their will, right? By, by asking them these questions that kind of expose their own contradictions. In a sense, if they have a belief, a wise person would accept that belief. They don't have to agree with it at all. They could even believe it's wrong. But to, I mean, this is causing harm to people, you guys, like to, 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 to uh, embarrass someone like that, to, to put them to shame through this trap of questions. I think um, it's, it reminds me of like a legal system, right? This like questioning, questioning, or the police, like trying to trap people through these questions. And I think that this is like, again, I hold high regards for both these individuals, um, but I don't think I would call him wise and that's based on my uh my own definition of what wisdom is and that is to understand to stand below to be able to know your position whether you feel you're above or below or beside uh, i think that 
I, I know what he was doing, especially when you're going after these politicians. I think politicians probably deserve it. <laughs> mm. But from a humble, humble standpoint, you know, there's got to be a better way. And this is why I believe in storytelling. This is why I keep, I always go back to stories, you guys, because they're less offensive. They don't offend people. They paint a picture and allow you to look at it and they walk away. Whereas if someone is asking you these questions, like rhetorical, investigative, uh, you know, uh, and tra trapping you un unless he wasn't trying to trap mm. them unless he was he it wasn't like that well no, he's just he was... asking genuine questions yeah but but you said to show them but you you said that he mm. did this in order to uh let them contradict themselves and learn from their own because you always you, you will contradict yourself because it's if you, if you draw anything to its logical logical conclusion you're always going to contradict yourself well, that's, well, that's probably, I guess that could be true. Um, but my, my point again is making people feel uncomfortable, right? A wise mm. man would not want anyone to suffer in any way, whether it's uh, mm. through their thinking, they wouldn't want to cause harm and pain because wisdom tells us that we're all the same, that we are all in this, this mm. fucking, this world of suffering together. And that it is our duty to ease mm. suffering. Now that comes from the Buddha. My wife would be proud. There's one more important aspect of this. Sorry, Steve, I'll shut up for a second. But um, at the time, there were these people called sophists. And the sophists, which means like uh, knowledge, were um, employed by the rich to teach them how to represent themselves in court. And uh, Plato and Socrates despised the sophists because the sophists pretty much taught that whoever could win the argument, you know, was right, which is a relativist perspective so whoever you know can have the right rhetoric the right sleight of hand can pull, pull the right rabbit out of the hat on the day wins the court the court case is right uh where socrates and plato says no that's not right we can't do that that's you know trickery that's underhanded tactics we need to we need to find the absolute truth to things we can't have people you know tricking each other into what's right and what's wrong all the time we have to make sure that we have this nailed down pat because we don't want to trick people we need to make sure that we have the answers yeah because there was no ethical compass with that right there was no morality associated to it it was just however you decide to win the argument and win the the, the mass or the, the the speech at the day was um whereas i think plato and socrates were much more concerned about justice and and truth and trying to find out what is what is real right is that is that a fair statement alan yeah 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 okay so yeah yeah i kind of feel like so, so, so so the problem is if, if you're a poor man and you're going to court against the rich man the rich man's being trained by a by a sophist mm. he's going to win the debate he's 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 right he's got the the floor that the poor man is wrong but the poor man might come with the more ethical argument and the beauty of the republic is it's talking about what is just and what is good and that is two very important most important aspects of life i believe along with the uh, absolutist and relativist um ethics yeah i so that that makes sense to me and that's what i i remember studying this a little bit at university and that was the main difference is that you know they would it's just be like it's be like the modern day being a lawyer and just arguing for the sake of arguing and winning for the you know even if you know your client's guilty just trying to manipulate the court and and avoid punishment right that's just you're you're well, just manipulating the, the audience to get what you want it's just a power play really 
if you know that rhetoric, there's plenty of fallacies. You can use ad hominem, you can use, you know, ad quoque and all these kinds of things. You can you can get the the ethos or the pathos of the of the audience. You can manipulate in so many different like ways. False premise. But I'm thinking yeah. I'm thinking Socrates and Plato were trying to get by the human emotion and you know almost write a fucking constitution which says this is what that is. And for me, I don't think that's possible, but it's a noble cause. Yeah, I guess it comes. What's the intention? Where it comes from? And I, th- I think I like John's point about, you know, when you're when Socrates was perhaps asking these questions, maybe he was trying to inspire them to critically think. Um, but I think that it's it is really difficult to to either plant ideas or to to question people and and change how people think because, you know, when I talk about for example, a really simple example like, you know, if you're you're, you're buying into the great Australian dream. And then I come back from Colombia and I talk about, you know, the, the value of travel and how travel can change your life. And, you know, I've seen the light, you know, don't worry about your mortgage, you know, live the world, you know, travel the world and, and live. And, um, you know, trying to explain that to people and people just think that you're crazy and they just, they, they can't even incorporate that. And in their current reality, they're like, well, that doesn't really make sense to me. So, you know, and then if you do kind of criticize them, and say, well, you know, a mortgage is, you know, and you point out the negative things of a mortgage, it doesn't really help that situation. You're not going to really win them over. You know, I think it's a lot about what people prioritize, uh, what you think is important in life. And, you know, everyone is, is choosing their lives. And I don't know if they're all in a cave of ignorance, you know, like, I think that it's not so much ignorance these days. I think it's just that we prioritize different things. And I shouldn't say that my ideology is, you know, ah, I love learning. So I've found the light or, you know, I love traveling and that's the light, you know, everybody follow me, but I'm not sure if that's the way, you know, the way forward at the moment. An example that I put down was I feel very strongly, not that I do it. So I'm still in the cave. I feel very strongly about charity and helping people and playing a part in society and, you know, uh, to me, it feels like a primordial instinct. By helping people, it kind of makes me feel feel good. And I, I would run around the world and I profess that to the whole planet. But I, I'm sure that the majority of people out there would turn around and say, you're crazy. You know, why, why the hell would you do that? You know, the, the church already does that. The, the, the Red Cross does that. You know, live your own life kind of thing. So to me, I feel like I've, I've seen the, the sun. I've seen the enlightenment there. Um, but... Yeah, other other people maybe the the problem with democracy is we're we're too like self, too too motivated to the self and not to the community, and we need to find a middle ground. Which sort of, I think so Plato goes too far with what he does, but I think we can find a middle ground between the the self and the society, capitalism and socialism, which does kind of work to a well, decent. Let me level. ask you guys this, and sorry, John, I don't know, cut you off here. Like, what do you think Plato was expecting? Like, the what is this illumination of 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 light, the light representing for the everyday man in the context of that of that historical period? And also, what is the the relevant, you know, or relevant uh, or equivalent illumination in in the modern day? Because um, in the in the context of Plato, maybe it's not that everyone becomes philosophers. Maybe it's everyone's critically thinks. I'm going to stop there and, and ask the question. 
Well, I'd just like to just touch back on what you, what you said about going back to Australia. So I have gone back to the States on several occasions and people are, wow, where have you been, man? Uh, what, where were you? What did you do? And I go, wow. And then I start telling them and within 30 seconds, they're done listening. They never wanted to know to begin with oh, what you. my experiences were. So this has happened to me over and over again with family members, with friends, right? Um, really? It's happened, it's happened with my wife, you know, like you go into telling about your experiences and people just don't understand. They don't have a mm. frame of reference. And so this makes, maybe uh, they feel stupid, right? Because they don't have these experiences. They don't understand, which makes you uncomfortable, which would make anyone uncomfortable to feel unlearned, unexperienced, or sorry, inexperienced <laughs> uh, English teachers. Uh, but I feel yeah, shocked, so I just, but I admit my wife is the same. Yeah, so, you know, these, I think this is, this is like a human condition almost. Like, it's, it's like, I think that that's maybe what Plato's trying to talk about is that, you know, the light to one person could look different to, to others, you know? And so mm. like what, you know, what exactly, I mean, the fire itself casts light, right? So the fire is a, is, is a form of light. Um, and, and, it, and the sun and it, casts a shadow too. And it can cast a shadow too. So therefore there's not just one, one sole source of light. I mean, now we have electricity. I mean, how you know what I mean? But I'm just saying it like, is a metaphor. So someone's someone's perception of what is truth or what is like accessible and what is real is going to be different from person to person. So I just I wanted to throw that out there. Like I've had a lot of experiences where I was made to feel well, I felt stupid too. Everybody felt stupid because they asked me a question. Oh, what were you doing? Mm. Tell me about your trips. And then I'd start telling them, and I swear it was maybe a minute and then they would just take a drink of their beer and be like hey and talk to somebody else and i was just like oh i guess you don't want to know my truth <laughs> story of my life I'm, I'm i'm the kind of person that if someone can correct me or contradict me and say no you've got that wrong i'll say thank you thank you for correcting me on that one yeah other people the they're, they're like I... no no i'm not wrong <laughs> You know, but I think that it goes both ways. I think I feel a lot of the times I love to learn when I'm wrong. I do. But there are other times where I think discomfort brews up, right? There, there's, a, there's a sense of like someone's not just helping you, they're pushing you, right? They're, they're um, challenging you, not just assisting or trying to give you, you know, um, maybe dialogue with you. It's more of a forceful push, right? Um, like, you know, I, I told you guys, I consider myself, uh, you know, I, I, I believe in Christ. I, I love him. He's the prophet uh, for me. Um, and I love the stories that go along with it. But I was telling Alan that I've been to many churches on my journey. I've gone to so many. And I went to this one Baptist church, uh, not Southern Baptist, which is completely different. But I went to this Baptist church in Bellingham, Washington. And uh, dude, I was frightened. I was scared. And um, I wasn't like, in this situation, I wasn't uh, uncomfortable because I felt like I was wrong. Okay, so maybe I, I, I think I'm on a tangent here right now. Um, but I remember believing that I was like, these people are crazy. This is why people, this is why Christ got a bad name. This is why the Bible has a bad name. It's just because of these types of people. Um, but uh, another one, um, 
is even before I decided to make my choice, whatever, uh, you know, here's, here's where I have been, been grown uncomfortable, right? Is I was, I did not grow up religious. I did not have to follow anything. I was free. I was free. And I decided to hold on to something, a, a ship in the, in the storm, right? Into the rising seas around me. And I, I jumped on the ship, but before that happened, way before that happened, when I was studying philosophy, when I was studying music, anthropology, literature, um, I saw a lot of people attacking, right, uh, Christians, like just just in general, like that belief system, like people, uh, I had a lot of friends that just thought it was a joke, thought that Christians and Muslims were stupid and that they were, you yeah. know, just like ignorant people. And I wasn't one at the time, right, at all. But it bothered me that these people attacked so vigorously because from my personal experience, outside of that Baptist church, which was nuts. Uh, uh, I've not really seen uh, a lot of religious people judging people so critically, like not me personally, other people have, but I haven't. But from my personal experience, it was the people that didn't believe that were attacking that made me wanna start looking deeper into this different way of thinking. Uh, just because if so, there can be that much emotion against something, there's got to be something, you know, Ben Harper said, uh, Ben Harper said, if you're not pissing anyone off, you're not doing anything new or creative. And so this well, I fell into me, the hole. This pushed me to like start studying. And, I, and the next term I took a scriptural literature class and then I started going, whoa, dude, these stories are amazing. And uh, still to me, that's what they are stories. Mm. Anyways, I fell into the whole Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, atheist movement about 10 years ago. And those guys, am I, can you hear me? Yeah. Um, but those guys, they're just, their rhetoric, you know, their logic wasn't so good. They, I, I've looked up recently, their logic and their debates were, were totally flawed, but they just had the popularity of the crowd. So they're winning all these debates and we're all you know, cheering them on like they're the messiah as well kind of thing so i was part of that kind of movement um probably from from my, my childhood where i was a pentecostal christian myself um and it just yeah to sort of go against what you're saying is i would take the readings of of the scriptures literally and i i wasn't open enough to understand the rich diversity and the complexity and how much it has actually, you know, created the society that we live in today. If it wasn't for these cultures, we wouldn't have the society. We wouldn't be who we are. So I've totally dropped any kind of bias against anyone unless they're harming someone. That's my only yeah, thing that I stand against. Uh, I heard a pause there. Stephen, did you, you have something? Well, if, if we want to bring it back to the allegory of the cave, you know, maybe, um, maybe like why, why do people get so defensive when you talk about, you know, new experiences to, to link that back? I feel like um, there's maybe there's two reasons, John, when people were just ignoring you, like, or, or would easily get distracted, perhaps, like you said, perhaps they were intimidated and then they felt uncomfortable with, um, you know, you having all these experiences that they didn't. Or perhaps, uh, again, and this links back into the religious debate, it just is a complete different, it's a complete conflict with their ideologies. So they think this guy's wasting my time. I don't care about this stuff. I'm never going to travel. It's, I've, I'm paying my mortgage. You know, I've got bills up to my eyeballs and a missus to keep happy. Like, you know, I don't care about what you do, you know, trekking around the, the, the jungle in Colombia and the, the Amazon 
and going through Brazil and almost getting, you know, killed by FARC, you know, like they're not interested in that, yeah. but, but um, yeah, it's, it is interesting to think about why that would be easily dismissed, but again, gonna... yeah, again, going back to what Plato might've been thinking, I think maybe Plato at the time may was thinking that maybe he just wanted people to think, maybe he was just like, I wish, mm. and, and, you know, maybe the philosophers just wanted, they didn't want people to just accept the cultural normalities and, and the social conditioning and, and just adopt ideologies without thinking. Maybe that's where it was at, you know, in the sense of like, there was an ideology, nationalism, you know, you should be this and do that. Maybe that was the light. Um, but I think today, what's interesting is that, I don't know, what's the light today? I think, you know, you touched on a really good idea, Alan, is that what is, you know, I think if you're a critical thinker in today's world, I think if you're aware of your decisions, and I think that, you know, maybe if you want to contribute in some positive way, you know, I don't know if there's a stronger light than that, you know, like whatever else that you believe in is kind of personal, it's your own ideology, but I don't know, what, what do you, what do you teach your students? Like I, what do you encourage people to do? It's just the, the light, as far as I can see in today's mind is, you know, everyone's going to have a different ideology. It's democracy. We have a whole bunch of um, diversity. I, I think that if you're a critical thinker and, you know, you're, you have an, a, a concept of myself as an individual and community, I think you've found the light. I don't know if it's much better than that because I'm not going to be able to convince everybody to take that trip to Colombia. I have this great sense of gratitude for where I am and who I am. So I like history and philosophy and learning about where we are and who we are and what we are kind of thing. And I find I'll, I'll learn something and it'll be like this groundbreaking thing. It's like the reason why there's 8 billion people on the planet is because some guy invented a way to extract nitrogen out of the air. It's, a, it's the most important thing that's ever happened. It's called the Harbour-Bosch process. And you try and explain that stuff to people. They, they look at you for the first five seconds and they shut down. And then I did a job for a guy two weeks ago and I mentioned it to him and he goes, mate, I'm a, what do you call it? Uh, I, I work in the fertilizer industry and you're the first person outside of the industry that I've ever met that had any idea about this topic. And you're hundred percent right. This is the most important thing that has ever happened to the planet and no one knows about it. And, you know, it's, I kind of lecture people a lot about things because I'm always learning and I'll be like, can you imagine how amazing this world is that we live in? And people go back to their cave because they've got this phone in their hand. The cave is the fucking phone now. And my wife would rather just go back to the ching chong bang wang 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 on the phone kind of thing. Sorry for the racist kind of thing there. But, um, I'm, I'm not saying I'm enlightened or I'm bringing any philosophical, I'm bringing appreciation and gratitude which I think makes life a bit easier, but people don't care. They just want to be entertained. They do their nine to five. That's the cave. They come home, they watch their phone and they go back to it. They don't question it. And that's, I think the main point. Um, as I said, Plato's idea of enlightenment was seeing beyond the world and seeing the uh, some ethereal concept in heaven. But I think for the modern day, we need to find something more sort of, you know, geopolitical or like intercommunal inter kind of thing. We need to get along with each other. It's just more of a social thing. Yeah, I just want to go. I like that, that um, 
analogy that the that the cell phone is like a new modern cave uh and that what you said at the beginning of this discussion that the movie theater is like a cave right and it's like we're just being fed all these stories uh which probably aren't leading us into any type of enlightenment at all. In fact, some of these stories may be dragging us away from them. Uh, so I really like that analogy of the, the, the cinema, right? Uh, the entertaining factor, people just want to be entertained. And now we have like, you know, the, um, it's like a maze of caves, right? So I want to transition our topic uh, to start looking at something, but I see the cave now as more of a series of caves. Um, like a maze or, uh, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of lost for the term I'm looking for, but yeah, like a maze with a series of caves within them. Uh, <clears throat> so back with, uh, to, get straight back, to get straight back to the cave um, and what happens to this character um, coming out into the light um, and the discomfort and the pain and him running back into the cave, preferring the cave to the light until he is dragged back out by say uh well possibly socrates or plato uh, <laughs> but no you know he's dragged back out mm. and forced into the light mm. and this is where the change the the metamorphosis takes place and uh it it actually is what divides separates and ultimately gets him killed by his own people by his own family by his own you know, the people he grew up with, right, in the cave. Uh, so um, I do want to get back to um, to how is this allegory? Let's look at it through a couple different pers uh, situations. So let's talk about education. So the cave is a series of, uh, well, illusions, we can say, on the wall, or truths, right? They're truths to someone. Uh, that are given to these people who cannot, they don't have an option to move right, to move left, to get up and leave. I mean, this reminds me of a school system, right? Like these kids are sitting down in their chairs, they're being forced to think in certain ways. And uh, I'm a teacher, do I think education is good? Yes, I do, absolutely. Um, I am, yeah, I've chosen this career because I love it. But um, at the same time, Let's go back to that discomfort. So we learn in today's world, um, science is like the closest thing to the truth we can have in a sense. Then we have math, then we have the arts, which are dying out slowly. You know, they're being, their flames are being dimmed before our very eyes. Um, and when you go through I mean, if you know neuroscience and the development of the human brain, you know, there's a lot of synapses that start connecting and making connections so that we can have these schemas and paradigms within our head. And this helps us remember uh, things. It helps us hold on to this, this, what we learn is by organizing them into these schemas, so to speak, or paradigms. All right, so what happens then? I mean, we're talking like 18 years. We're talking about, I mean, the most important time of a human's brain development, aside from language acquisition between the ages of six and one and a half or one year and two years, something like that, is their adolescence. And where are these kids? Well, they're being taught to think in certain ways. So these, in a sense, we can actually, I can, I see like 
language acquisition, I th- like storytelling. I even see science and math as very beneficial lenses to use, right? Um, but what happens when something changes? So if we try to convince them, let's say, for example, uh, a Christian or a Muslim tries to say, or whatever, it doesn't matter, a, a religious group tries to say, okay, yeah, but science really isn't that important, right? You don't need science, you need God. Um, or math isn't really that important, you need enlightenment, you need to find the truth, right? So all of a sudden, these kids have invested so much of their lives, not by choice, obviously, but they have, their brain has constructed that the moment that new light, not the fire, but the sun, a different type of light comes in, it creates pain and, and great discomfort. My, my problem, okay, you say science and truth and things like that. I've, um, I'm, a rel- I'm a relativist, so a nihilist almost. I wouldn't go as far as destroying my house, but um, I, don't, I don't see things as truth or scientific. I go back to David Hume, and he kind of references everything to causal relation. So we don't really know anything. We just know that, you know, if I drop this mouse, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fall it's going to fall because, you know, just through, through experience, we've experienced that enough times. He, he has this um, uh, example, like, you know, the sun rises every day, but, you know, it doesn't have to. One day the sun won't rise. It's a causal relation. We just expect that to happen. It doesn't mean it's going to happen. So we, what we've done is we've just predicted things. We've predicted them very well, you know, through calculus and very precise mathematical precision, but it doesn't mean that it's going to happen every time. It's a, it's a skeptical perspective it's to say that you can't guarantee things are always going to happen. But I, again, I take a very relativistic subjective view on, you know, as you say, as a, as an educator, like we teach the sub- people truth. Like, yeah. And that's the thing is that I'm trying to say is that there's a system in place. So I, I understand that you've, you've found your path. Um, and there's relativism and there's these things, this lens, right, that you're going through. But the masses don't think like that. The masses are put through this educational system that teaches them not how, but what to right think. And wrong. Right and wrong, fact and fiction, fiction, right? Or uh, false and true or false. I mean, we have mm. them right in our quizzes. I mean, it, this is an, an indoctrination for sure. That is a binary system. Either there's yes or no, or right or wrong, or up or down. Nope, there's no other. Okay. And so I feel like, yes, some of us go on a journey and come across some wonderful texts and stories and monologues and dialogues that give us a new lens to look through. But I guess what I'm talking about is that discomfort, right? Or let's let's change it from education to religion. Someone that grows up in a religious household and their families believe all this stuff, and then they go out into university and they they're being challenged every day by people that don't believe that things religion is a, a, a slave mechanism. It's a servitude uh, for the benefit of a church, right? Uh, and and then so it's the opposite. It's this. It's not the opposite. It's exactly the same thing. It is being grown in a specific soil and then being uprooted and placed into another soil. You know, most, many plants will die from this situation in the literal sense. Now you can imagine something inside of all these people uh, dying or being, in, you know, laden in pain to be challenged so 
it deeply. I think it's very important. I think like what Stephen was saying was that maybe Plato wasn't trying to say right or wrong. Uh, um, wait, was that what you're saying? But uh, to just to think, to just think, to be able to think from both sides, right? Um, the mark of a superior mind is to be able to hold two opposing truths in your head at the same time. Um, opposing truths. And if you can do that, then you are closer to wisdom as I can't remember the name right now, but the sociolo sociologist philosopher said um, that that is the truth. That is what wisdom is, is being able to hold opposing ideas in your head at the same time and being okay with that and understanding both sides. Yeah. I think that's a great, uh, like it's, it's definitely worth reflecting on that. You know, Alan and I have spoken a lot about postmodernism because you know, one of my favorite philosophers, the modern Jordan Peterson, you know, actually, actually like despises um, postmodernism and a lot of academics do. And I say that tongue in cheek because um, Alan knows that, um, Alan knows I like Jordan Peterson and um, it's interesting to see them argue against it and what their arguments are, uh, you know, like in the, the whole premise for postmodernism basically is, is exactly what you're saying, John, is for people out there that might not be familiar with it. Um, I sort of dug around with it for a little while. Uh, it's basically like there are all different lenses of truth. There's religion, there's science, there's philosophy, there's biology, there's just, and people adopt a particular lens. But now we're starting to realize that one lens might not necessarily be true. Maybe two lenses or three lenses can actually overlap and intertwine. Um, maybe we shouldn't, maybe we can- do yeah, maybe we can kind of step in and out of them and transition. Maybe we can look at science and go, okay, as an institution, it's, it's a powerful institution, but it's and in itself is flawed, you know, uh, because, because of the internal mechanisms of, of that institution. Um, the people humanity. that, sorry, Alan? Humanity. Yeah, and because of people. our human nature, right? Uh, the people that hate po postmodernism, they basically say there's, a, there's an... Uh, an underlying current where everything that's, you know, everything that's critiqued or every single institution, there is that human element where it's all, you know, it's, it's a self-serving uh, enterprise and it's, it's just working. It's human corruption seeped into it. But I think, I don't want to focus on that, but I think that the modern day thinker should be aware that we, if you want to look through a particular lens, let's be real to say that, okay, every institution created by man is flawed and that's part of our human nature, right? I think there is going to be our humanity that's corrupted in that, but I think it's kind of a good thing to look at every different aspects of life and go, well, it's not all blind universal truth, right? We can, you can decide for yourself what particular discipline that you want to invest into more. And you can be aware that even that isn't as watertight as what you might think whereas like before you know if you invested into science or religion or you know you're a you're a philosopher it's like people it's kind of like people would shut out the other ideas and that doesn't really make any sense it's like teaching kids english in one classroom and then teaching them history in the other in, the, in another classroom that's right beside you know those subjects are intrinsically connected and there's so many overlaps why would you separate them right so I think there's, I think it's worth keeping that in mind is that in the postmodernist world, nothing like truth is kind of somewhat diminished in, in the, in the modern world, in the modern, you know, like where it's, 
are like, you know, you can believe in science, you can, but, and I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing, but I think from a critical, if you're a critical thinker, at least you can go into a particular ideology, an institution like Jordan Peterson saying he believes in the, in the institution of um, education, you know, where people will say education in itself is, is something corrupt. You know, it's, it's another self-serving institution that it relies on money and people investing into it and also having connections with government. So I think it's, it's good to be aware of that. I'm a strong believer of uh, plural, pluralism. So, you know, if, you know I, I've been on the internet and, you know, you, you watch a socialist docu- uh, documentary or interview or YouTube clip and someone says, oh, Marx is my hero. And I'm just like, idol worship? That doesn't sound like, you know, the smartest thing to do. So my, my perspective is if I ruled the world, I would read every philosophical, you know, treatise ever produced and I would find all the good parts and take them and discard all the negative parts and do my best to make everything come together to work together. Everyone has a good, Marx had good ideas, you know, Adam Smith had brilliant ideas. He was, if you really read into Adam Smith, he was quite a humanist. He wasn't just the capitalist pig that wanted to, you know, put kids in, in fucking chimneys and sweeping and working for, for nothing and dying at young ages kind of thing. So um, pluralism for me is the way to go. But uh, to, to be honest, what Plato is getting at here is there is an absolute truth. And the philosopher goes out and he finds it. Yeah. Yeah. Because probably in the context of, of where that was, there probably was, you know, he had an idea of what absolute truth is. Like for me, when I look at the, um, the allegory of the cave, I look at the sun for me. And I think, what is my sun? Is it like, what is my illumination? Um, and I think for in the modern day, it's kind of like, you know, it's to kind of be the best version of who you are, you know, is to be a critical thinker is to grow is to become illuminated, but, you know, you get to kind of choose like who you become, maybe with Plato and, and, and Socrates, maybe they had a bit more of a kind of linear, you know, linear decision, like it was kind of a bit more uh, restricted. But, you know, I think, like, I look at that illumination. And I just think, if you, if you are aware of your own growth, if you're aware of your own intellectual capacities, if you're aware of your own path, and you try to fulfill that potential, then... I don't know if you can ask any more out of a human than to, to, to do that, you know, like, and then the schools are kind of to link that back to what John was saying. A lot of the schools do indoctrinate kids and give them fact, but I would argue now I would like to think a lot more critical thinking is taking place, uh, especially in the, in the schools that have money, right. It's a bit more affluent. Um, and we're, we're trying to allow kids to grow into the grow into the version of themselves that they want to create. So like, let me, well, I would ask you, I'll throw this back on you guys and just say, well, if you, what, what can you ask of a human being of a global, of a, of a, of, of a self-aware citizen, but merely to be aware of their own actions, to become, um, to grow into their potential and become uh, a critical thinker that perhaps contributes a little bit to society. I'm not sure if I understand completely, but I would say um, to, to, well, I guess search for happiness in your own truth. Like I think that everybody self-determination to be able to find what they believe and know that there are other beliefs and that it's okay to believe differently than other people. Um, that's not wrong as long as you play by the rules of your community, because there are going to be rules. And those most of those rules are in place to 
harmonize things, right? To, to smooth things out so that we can all just kind of go about our way. But I, yeah, again, I'd say find your own truth. I think everybody's unique. Um, you know, no one can see exactly the same way as another human being, right? They're going to be different no matter what. Uh, but also to respect that others have their belief and uh, that's okay. And maybe not to try to change other people. I mean, you know, some people want to change like the people like to help them, right? So what if they don't want to be helped though? You know what I mean? So like if someone wants help, if they look like they need some assistance or some guidance, you you know, one person could say, well, this is my belief. It works for me. I don't know if it'll work for you, uh, but I want to help you in any way I can. I'll listen to your side and I'll just enjoy it for the story it is. Um, but I think that is the most important thing is to, to find what you truly believe, what works for you, and to allow others to do the same, never to project your, your beliefs onto other people. Um, but like, like you guys, a lot of people prefer the cave, right? Like, um, you know, Plato wrote this like about, what was it, 300 BC? Um, give, give oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A few yeah. Years. 3, 389 or something. Yes. And in the old, the book of Exodus is uh, uh, written in about 600 BCE, supposedly. We don't know for sure. But mm. you guys, the, 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 we'll just call them Jews for the sake of the Bible. I think it was just a mm. particular people, like people that wanted to follow God and not pop culture, right? Uh, and they left. And just like the guy that left the cave, they ran back to Egypt. They, you know, and in the Bible, it tells you that they were enslaved by Pharaoh, but they were highly successful. So it, what is this slavery? I feel like the Bible is talking about the same thing as the cave. Um, it, you know, the exodus, right, is getting out. Exodus is getting out of the cave. And, and the Jewish people, the sons of Israel did, and then they sold one of their brothers, um, into bondage, right, Jacob, and they sold him off as a slave to the Egyptians. Eventually, he does so well, uh, and the family comes for trade. Long story short, they go back, they settle again, and then they have to be ripped away from this ideology, this way of living, this cave, you know, and I feel like Americans live in a cave. I feel like everybody lives in a cave to, to some extent, right? I mean, they preferred their bondage because they were so successful uh, in Egypt, but their leader said no. Moses was their slave that was freed from the cave, and he said no. You guys need to get away from this bondage. This is not the truth. This is not who you are. You need to follow this new truth, and they go marching off into the desert for 40 years, and they, they don't believe. They get pissed off. They almost want to Moses says, they're going to stone me, God. They're going to kill me. My own people are going to kill me. Uh, why? And, and anyways, long story short, this is Exodus. So they end up severing themselves from the Egyptian cave, if you will, and starting a new. Uh, notice they're in a desert in the sun. Okay, so the story is very juxtaposed in many ways. Exodus in the cave is almost identical in many ways. Um, and so I just wanted to say that, like, like I said, so if, if you're a pl platonist, 
uh, or a philosopher, that's awesome. Those stories are there for you. Use them to improve who you are, to help other people. But remember, uh, in the, the Jewish people believe a similar thing, right? Castrate yourself from the cave separate yourself from that society because it is bondage you're being lied to you're you're living a life that isn't really who you are you're living their perception of what your life should be so i'm going to end with that i i always do like to drop a bible reference because i think it's the greatest book ever in the whole universe well planet earth uh -huh. let's just say planet earth uh yeah it's yeah so anyways i just wanted to sh share that that people do choose their own bondage i think that some people just want to be pruned like your bonsai tree mr stephen i think they want to be taken care of they want all the answers to be given to them they don't want to think and like i said dude the, the jewish people wanted to go back to egypt they're like what the hell why are we following this crazy guy moses we should kill him just kill this guy he tricked us he tricked us out of egypt uh, so it's a very fascinating thing because, again, they repeat that they were slaves, that they were in bondage, but it was their choice, right? Yeah. So this is the bondage of the mind, right? Our own mind creates its own walls in front of us and behind us. And there is a glimmer of light, like the, there is a glimmer of light within all of us, uh, but there are walls. We're surrounded by walls. And even though the light is there, it's dim. And there's more light in the universe to, to, to be exposed to. Yeah. That's, that's my take on the cave. Yeah. That, that's a great, that's a, that's, that's a great story. And I reckon I can run on the back of that is that, you know, the cave and the ignorance and the distractions, like it's pretty hard to throw them away. And I feel like, you know, I feel like in the modern day, it definitely hurts to change it, you know, we, I think a lot of us accept our own slavery in a sense in, in the, in the modern day. Um, and I think when you, if a lot of people don't begin that journey because it hurts to change, if you say, well, it's just kind of easier to be on your phone scrolling and being distracted than going, holy shit, my life kind of sucks. I've, I've fallen into this. Uh, my parents have told me to do this and I'm not really reactive. Now I'm not really creative. I've been reactive and now I'm just kind of living in this constant dissatisfaction but instead of dealing with it i'm just going to scroll on facebook kill a few hours and then hopefully the day will finish um and i think that's really you know to be honest i have a lot of empathy for those people because you know if you're in that in that frame of mind and to go to change and to to uproot your life to to basically start living for yourself and to say, okay, I want to do this because it's a part of me to tap into that own, your own inner son, to tap into your own real wants and, and needs as a human, you're going to get lots of resist, resistance and not just resistance from yourself, that internal conflict. You're going to get it from externally, from everybody else. People are going to, people don't want to hear that you've decided to drop your professional career and become a chiropractor or freaking whatever it is, some crazy idea that your heart wants you to do or become, become a comic book artist. Like nobody wants to hear that. You know, they're just going to think you're stupid. Um, and we get so much kickback, so much negativity from people that think we should be doing something. We should be living the world in the way that they think is best. So I feel like we get a lot of opposition. We get, um, a lot of isolation 
And unless you have a really kind of strong rebellious personality, it's, it's very difficult to not conform. So I think a lot of people in the modern day, I think are distracted because they haven't started really living their own lives and they don't know how to, uh, and they haven't really started that journey. But I think that's, if you look at what is the real light and what I think about is the real light in the modern day is, is asking yourself, what do I want? Who am I? What is my identity? How can I grow as a person? How can I become the best version of myself? How can I do what really matters to me on this? You know, while I've got this very, very ephemeral time um, on this earth. Yeah, I feel like a lot of what you used to say about pleasure and pain. You know, if you start suffering enough, that's when you start trying to find your way out of the cave. Yeah, because it's 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 more painful to stay and and suffer than it is to Mm. to make a change and try to. Uh, you know, re realign your life, but it's, you know, so um, I think, what, yeah, what he doesn't say what he doesn't say in the allegory is, you know, the prisoner isn't there, you know, being discontented with his life and going, hang on, maybe there's more outside, you know, he's kind of, he, he, he trips out of the cave accidentally and he gets out yeah. and he doesn't like what he sees. And what I really don't like about the allegory is he's then coerced out. He's forced out of the cave to be forced into someone else's reality and into an absolute, he's forced to be indoctrinated into another society to teach the rest of the people in the cave. So he's almost, you know, being coerced, you know, common, commandeered by uh, someone else's indoctrination. So I've got a real problem with that. Um, I got a problem with the whole book itself, but um, I think John mentioned um, John Locke before and, uh, like a lot, of, a lot of things that he says, and I've got it written here. He says, um, blah, 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 that all persons are endowed with natural rights to life, liberty, and property, and that rulers who fail to protect those rights may be removed by the people by force if necessary. And to me, that sounds like a pretty good constitution. You know, if, if we'd have those few basic rights, I, I think, as John said before, living in a society, we have this sort of duality of rights and responsibility, yet the government offers to protect us, you know, give us property, give us liberty, give us life, look after us in those ways. Um, but we also have the responsibility to do what the government expects us to do at the same time. If the government, there's this old Chinese kind of concept called heaven's mandate. And like, if, if there's a flood or a typhoon or something destroys the country and, or economic collapse and the government fails, you know, God has condemned that government to failure. And that's when the people overthrow that government, a new government sort of takes over. And it's kind of, you know, not a bad metaphor for this kind of situation. And it's, it's kind of inverting the whole cave metaphor. It's kind of, you know, creating the, the rulers as the cave almost. You know, we're going to kick them out of the cave, you know. If, if, if they don't hold up their end of the bargain, that's when we're going to, you know, blow up that fucking cave because they're in the cave and we're outside enjoying our freedoms. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like it's, you know, in, in the modern day that the slavery, uh, the slavery that I see is that, you know, you might've chosen something that you didn't really want and it's economic kind of slavery. You it's, it's not, it's not obviously like the old days where it's life or death. It's, it's kind of not being treated fairly. Um, you know, everyone in a modern, in, 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 if you're living in a rich country, rich developed country, you have a, a, an amazing amount of choice 
Um, you know, if you're, if you're an everyday citizen and you're, you're not living a creative life and you're living a reactionary life, maybe there's an element of some kind of slavery there, but really we all have to work within the restraints of the system. And it just depends on how much, how many, what type of restraints, what are those pulls and pushes, how, um, authoritarian are those restraints and that depends on the country right but i i feel like the, the modern day slavery for me is is looking at someone that's stuck in their job they've got a mortgage they've got three kids um they can't quit their job and they're just discontented i think that's you know they 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 have to tell themselves that that their path is the right thing to do and you can't tell them that their path is wrong or you, i don't think it'd be wise to to say, hey, man, just quit your job and travel around the world. That's, you know, so I don't know. I guess it depends on the context too of, of that slavery, of those decisions and, and how you feel about where you are based on the type of perhaps government or responsibilities that you're, you're interacting with. You remind me of like feudal feudalism and um, the early you know, bourgeoisie where, you know, people of our culture or, or our social standing would um, work in mills for 18 hour days and we'd have to fight for our right to get an eight hour working day. And, um, you know, you get hurt, injured on, on the, on the work site, you go home, you start to death kind of thing. This throughout history, pretty much the majority of people have been slaves to the, the aristocracy It's kind of, it almost is what Plato's kind of saying, but I think what you've opened up now is a whole different can of worms because it's almost a psychological cave that we're in that we have to sort of get ourselves out of. Yeah. Thank you. I yeah. love that. I thought it's, I mean, that's the way I, like I, I see everything metaphorically. Right. So like I, I that was what I was trying to say is ch people choose their own slavery. It's by what they think. Right. Um, there is a fig, like a figurative cave. There is a metaphorical cave, the cave within the walls of our minds and then there's the, there's the actually borders uh, that are, surround us in our country nations, you know, um, and these are two different caves, yet they exist simultaneously. And as I was telling Stephen, is that we're in a series of caves. This isn't one cave, right? He's just boiled it down to simplicity by giving us the one cave and the alternative. That's it. He makes it simple and accessible. Whereas mine would be a little more complex uh, going into a series of interconnected caves um, that we are um, all in. But I think that like, uh, you know, back to what Alan said, this, this feudal societies are great caste systems, right? We have these great caste systems and people like Plato benefit from those and are able to think on a different level as say the 7-Eleven and food panda drivers that are all over here in Bangkok and all over the world. Do we love having 24 7-Eleven? Yes, we do. <laughs> it was terrible when they were closed during the lockdowns. Like it's 7-Eleven, 24 hours. Those guys work Dude, they work six twelves or six tens. They make the minimum wage. Uh, and that makes the prices better for the consumer. So in my, like, see, this is the, my, do I think that's right, wrong? I don't. I, I have ability to hold two opposing ideas right now. And one is that we need these low, and this is going to sound terrible, but you have to understand that I see it the other way too. So give me a moment, is that, this is what Plato needed to have this 
ability to have leisure time to reflect and to think, to spend all this time thinking, because he didn't just have a dream, wake up and write the Republic. It took years and years of education, which I, being a student of Socrates, I would imagine that he had money. Definitely, definitely. This I'll, I'll just... Give me one second. In order for this yeah. to happen, we do have to have like this feudal, this caste system, right? Or else everybody's just gathering their own fruit, hunting their Hi, own Rocky. food, their own stuff like this. And so at, on the other side of things, do I want, would I love for like 7-Eleven workers and food panda workers to work less hours and make more money, more money? Absolutely. Do I think it's possible in the current system, the economic system and society? No, I don't. Ew, they actually make good money. They actually make decent money. I, I heard the local service station guy and he, he was an accountant and he had another skill up his, up his sleeve. He was from India. And I'm like, why do you work here? He's like, because he pays me well. You know, they get, they're getting pretty average wages, you know? So, uh, no, just, not, not the average 7-Eleven worker, not the average food panda yeah. lineman. But is it, yeah. Alan's saying yeah. that in Australia. But, yeah, but that's, in Australia. that's just... Yes, and that's just a specific example, but mm. well, not really, because in the United States, you have very low. In fact, the United States has one of the greatest divides between wealth and the world, and mm. we have a, a higher okay. level than poverty than most countries would ever even be able mm. to understand. I can't believe uh, that. So, uh, Google it when we're done. Please do me that favor. Yeah, I, I do understand. So, but in the U.S., you know, if you work to for, me, they're, they're the first world in country. a lot of places, um, like in Oregon or in the Midlands, um, and you work for a convenience store, you can't live alone. You can't have your own nice one-bedroom apartment. You cannot. So I don't want to go on that tangent right now. But my point was was that this uh, these caves exist, and uh, there's the the one that our societies create these caste systems, right? These these feudal societies where there's the aristocracy, and then there's the lower the serfdom. Right. And then there's also the choice, right? Choosing our own enslavement uh, by what we do with the time that we're given and what we choose to follow. There's something really wrong with America because I'm not going to say Australia is perfect, but from what I understand of America, you know, there's, there's homeless people on the street and we don't get that here. And as I said, I, I make good money with my job and I go to the 7 Eleven and there's, there's a job wanted sign up on the window. And I know that they're going to pay me a decent wage. You know, they're not going to pay me quite what I get, what I do now, but they're going to pay me enough to pay my mortgage, to get me, my son through school. It's kind of, Australia's kind of balanced this thing out where the minimum wage isn't a problem. You know, people, we all agree that people deserve a certain quality of living. And, you know, I was raised by the government. So my father pretty much is the government and I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the socialist, the socialist system, which is kind of collaborated with capitalism in Australia. I think it's the same in uh, Northern Europe, Scandinavian countries and things like that. I think America has just got this weird, yeah, schismatic, you know, dichotomy against, you know, the haves and the haves nots, you know, if, if even the poor people think that the poor should be poor because, you know, why should I, you know, pay taxes for them or whatever? I don't even know what the issue is with that. That just sounds, yeah, so absurd to me, the American situation. Yeah, so that's sad. probably a, dis that's a discussion for a whole different day because that's yeah, completely yeah. different than the cave that we're talking about. Like mm. the, mm. what we're, we're trying to focus on is this bondage of, mm. of mind and freedom mm. of thought of and the, 
you know, the matrixes that we live within. Um, whereas mm. this is, this is, I would say that like econ economic uh, stuff and, you know, yeah, country, yeah. this country, this would be yeah. a totally different subject. Oh, just going on with what you were saying, but I was um, talking to a friend yesterday and she's working for cash in hand and she's getting $25 an hour cash in hand which is pretty good money for Australia. That's like, I'm considering going and doing that job, you know, kind of thing. Uh, she manages to get the doll as well. So she, the government pays her, she gets cash in hand. Um, it's, it's a pretty enviable situation um, for her. And she says, and if you, like for me at the moment, I'm having a breakdown at work. So even $500 a day to me doesn't seem like enough. To her, she sees 187 or you know, 250 on the, on, on the paycheck and that's enough for her to get through the day, you know? she's that's enough for her for me i need something else and i think as we've said before the majority of the people are okay with a decent paycheck you know as long as they get that pay rise every couple of years they don't get abused too much at work they change jobs every couple of years they go back to their family they're okay others of us you know want to educate ourselves we want to experience things blah 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 yeah, I think maybe a good connection could be like it, that links this back together in Australia is like the government kind of takes care of you. So even if you're broke, you can still find a way to kind of reach your potential, right? It's and you can you can basically be very irresponsible or you can be impoverished, mm, impoverished, mm. or you can be very unfortunate. And then the government helps you to get educated very easily in perhaps in the United What's States. The yeah, it's more difficult to do that. And if it's more difficult to do that, then a lot of the things that maybe Plato was experiencing, they're not necessary. They're not um, things that are required. I can't conjugate the verb necessity at the moment, um, but they're like, they're luxuries, right? right? You know, they're, they're to be educated and to be, um, to pursue an arts degree and to study literature, like, yes, you can become a teacher, but like people that study anthropology or biology, you know, a lot of, a lot of times it's because they have a passion for it and then they find a job that aligns with that. So I think it's a, you know, a lot of people in the modern day are just stuck on that bottom end of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, trying to just survive, you know, they're trying to just pull money together. And, um, you know, depending on the country, I think will depend on how much opportunity people get that are vulnerable um but it's it's not really i don't think it's a very just thing to say uh, that everybody can become a philosopher i think people are trapped in their own maybe either psychological cave i think that's an excellent metaphor or you know or they don't have the tools to be able to get out of that psychological cave because we don't teach people how to do that and that's i think that's a real issue so at the moment these capitalistic societies intentionally keeps a lot of people on minimum wage and there's different elements of suffering based on that, you know, based on the country. And it, it's going to be really hard for them to, to grow into that, into their, the best version of themselves if that's where they are economically. So, but I think if you're a, if you're a middle-class person in, in most developed countries, there's really no excuse. If you're, if you're a middle-class person and you have, uh, you know, you, you have, you have a relatively stable household, you have food and, you know, basic ideas and morality, then it's kind of like, it's on I've... you. Yeah. It's on, it's on you. Right. You know, if, if you, if you're struggling from day one and you just know poverty and trying to surviving, trying to survive, then maybe it's, you know, it's going to make it harder for you to break out of that psychological cave. But 
Literally, I am yeah. king. I am a, a king. In Australia, like you are, and it's to break out of that psychological cave is is tough um, when you're just concerned with uh, with surviving. I remember that I was having this conversation with Alan. I don't know, seven years ago, we were walking down the street and. And I was saying, you know, we, we are in economic slavery here. Everyone's, you know, we're all at some level of slavery. And Alan was like, look at those guys at the restaurant right there eating their, their, their T-bone steak. You know, that wouldn't have been possible for the middle-class man to live like how we do a hundred years ago or, you know, 150 years ago, the, the level of technology and medicine and, and standard of living we have in rich countries. Like we've come a long way, right? But, you know, it's, it's really... I guess the question is, you know, do you have the tools as an individual to break out of your psychological cave? Go I've got on. one passing comment, which I don't expect you to go too far with, but I come across a, an, a, a, a phrase the other day, economic refugee. It's taken me a while to get my head around this concept, economic refugee. What the hell is an economic refugee? To me, it doesn't make any sense. I can understand, you know, Cubans and Puerto Ricans, you know, moving into the, you know, the Southern country parts of America and being cleaners and, you know, avoiding, um, what do you call it? The government and working tax free, but there are people out there that come from countries that, um, you know, they, they might be highly skilled workers, you know, they might be, you know, engineers of some kind and they will risk their freedom. You know, they, they'll jump on a boat and they will try and get a refugee status in a country just on the premise that they have a high enough skill level that they may become a citizen of a country that will pay them an affordable, you know, wage kind of thing. So, so like me, if I go to China and I do my job, I'm a bum, you know, my job in China, I'm, I'm, I'm making dirt where I am here. I'm making probably as good a money as any, anyone else, you know? So it's really, well, yeah, the, the society does the language in the, the language on the news, you know, it can be very, um, like either inflammatory or misguided or that purposely um, emotionally emotive, mm. right? You know, for me, economic refugee means someone that's, you know, experiencing that, that they lack opportunity economically. So they're doing it out of desperation, but it, it kind of has connotations that oh, they may, they want to come to Australia and make more money and economically prosper in a, in a rich, you know, more thriving, stable country. So the language is very, uh, manipulative. I'm gonna go. Mm. The, I'm gonna. But if you come from, if you yeah. come from India and you're a doctor and you're getting paid crap or you can't find a job, if I go to Australia, I'm instantly going to get a job. That's my only argument. Stephen, do you have to go somewhere or something? Just, I'm just gonna. Can I just use the bathroom? Sorry, you uh, guys. You guys can keep going. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna just <laughs> take a, a, a five. I've got to. I've got to. I've got to go. One sec. All right. Well, think about this when you're going. When you come back, I want to wrap it up with talking about the death. So the ultimate death of the person that is uh, enlightened and that returns to redeem the cave dwellers. Okay, so keep that in your head. Talk about the the death. Sorry, the, did you say the death? Yeah, the end of the story. So okay. he becomes enlightened, then he goes back in the cave mm. to help, and yep. then he's killed. Okay, so like that, that way we can wrap up the whole story, right? Like, yeah, I think we've, we've gone on a, a lot of tangents, and I think that some of this. I think it's will, done well, though. It's, it is, but for listeners go, Steve, listening go. to people speaking. Yeah, go ahead, Stephen, go. Okay. Make it snappy. Okay. So, <laughs> just so uh, three, two, one, recommence. Uh, I just wanted to say that I'm not like, I'm not the biggest fan of Plato. I, I love philosophy. And I, I would say that, you know, 
I get a bit emotional at sometimes and I'll say, you know, I don't believe anything Plato says, but then I'll read something really profound in, in his texts. And, you know, I, I find, you know, beauty and information. I learn from everything. So, uh, but there's one quote, any, any uh, philosophy unit you take or anyone that starts a lecture or a speech on Socrates starts with this quote. Even Alfred North Whitehead reportedly summed up the Greek thinker's accomplishment with the remark, all of Western philosophy is but a footnote to Plato. Oh, very interesting. That's how important Plato is. Yeah, and, I, you know, I guess we could, like, see the thing about the way I see things is that I see that there's things I disagree with, but maybe Plato wants us to disagree with him, right? Like, maybe that is intentional. Um, to create conflict, right, within our own selves. And, uh, you know, I agree with you. Like, I, I think the story is fascinating. I do think it's, it's I don't want to use universal. That's the wrong word completely, but it is a lens to look at things Absolutely. through. Um, yeah, you know, like social norms, culture, religion, economic statuses, like philosophy, thinking, religion. So I think that he's on to something. And I do see why he is a very, very important philosopher, uh, one of the greatest. Oh. And, and I'd put, you know, these allegories into like, well, I don't want to say like scriptural status, but in some ways they are once they've mm. lived so long. They've lasted so many millennia. People start have to say, this guy's not being forgotten. He's still alive today. Plato is still alive because people are still and studying him. His ideas live on. So where do we draw the line for what is like sacred kind of discussion, writing, and what is not? So I think, yeah, I, I feel the same way about you as about Plato as you do. But at the same time, I can see like, I don't think he's an idiot. I think that there was, mm. he was trying to create conflicts within all our minds, because that's how you get people to think. You get people to become skeptical. And for them to be skeptical, they have to question themselves. They have to question others. And I think Plato does a brilliant job of this. But, but like you said, there are things I really disagree with in this text. And mm. some of the interpretations that I've read by other people, I disagree mm. with it. Um, but I think that is the catalyst. I think that is the, igni the, the ignition right of critical thinking is to challenge your own beliefs and i think plato did a brilliant job in forcing us to like question things right like what the hell is he trying to do what is he saying i think he's wrong well maybe he's right i don't know huh you know i, I mean philosophy follow you know philosophy hmm. comes from sophocles no right sophocles was a, a great scholar and was about you know, learning and understanding Stop and file, we all know, just means the love of. So the love of wisdom. knowledge and learning. Um, mm. Well, knowledge and yeah, wisdom, I would say kind of separates a little bit from knowledge, but you need knowledge to have wisdom. So I guess that's not, they're not separable, but um, yeah, I think it's a brilliant allegory. I'm really stoked on it. And then, you know, I, I just think there's hidden meanings. That's why I told you today, Alan, like, I think like this text, I feel rushed on it. I would like mm, to read it definitely. now, probably yeah. a couple more times and then revisit it in one year. And then the following year, that's why I'm saying, mm. like, I feel like this is almost on the scriptural side of things. Uh, it doesn't bring in God, right? Of course. Um, mm. But it does like, as we grow as humans, like if I would have read this in my twenties, 
my interpretation today would be completely different. And this is what the, I love about scripture is that as we grow, it grows within us, or we reinterpret and relearn new things and different perspectives, and we have different experiences. So, so I think this is a wonderful text. I think it is a text that I will revisit more than once in the future. Um, and I would like to talk about what happens to the enlightened man, right? So we have this guy that goes Can I say out of quickly? a cave. Uh, sure. Um, just um, uh, the influence that Plato actually had on Christianity is, is, a, is a very great sort of aspect of history. A lot of the early Christian philosophers were actually Platonists at the same time, like uh, August, uh, St. Augustine and um, Paul himself. They were all followers of um of, of Plato, um, a lot of the sort of concepts of like, um, you know, the, the heavenly realm and things like that come from a book called the Timaeus, which all these guys were reading back in the day. So there's a lot of Platonism within Catholicism at the same time. Um, to add to the Republic itself, um, to sort of demonize it, there's two parts in it. There's one part where he says to have the society that he needs Um what do you have to do? You have to kill all the people of a certain age. You have to drive them out of the town and let them, you know, um, just, you know, die of exposure kind of thing. Uh, he believes in eugenics. He says if a child is born, um, you know, not up to caste or sick or like, you know, the Spartans would do, they'd put them on the Apothetine Hill, let them die of exposure. Um, he expounded censorship and, I think at the very end of the book, he says something about they're going to kick all the poets and, and all the musicians out of town. So he had this very dictatorial kind of um, uh, sort of sense to him. But I listened to a few lecture series on it and the lecturer, like th these are all, these are all philosophies from other people who have read the text. I can't remember the guy's name, but um, the, the lecturer that I was listening to was almost saying that the reason why Plato has added these extra parts into the book is to sort of say how difficult it would be to create a perfect society. You know, you cannot do it. It's not possible to do it. These are the challenges that we will face. And just to keep these things in mind, it's the ideas there. We can, we can try to achieve it, but it's kind of an impossibility. Yeah. But it, that to me is like, it's to, to, I don't want to simplify it, but I think a simple point to add to that, or to that runs off the back of that, is once ideas permeate in the human psyche, and the weight of truth continues to to just keep growing, and maybe it flourishes in different ways. So I think that's a beautiful thing of of humanities had that ability is that we kind of wake up, our consciousness develops that illumination, and we 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 um, we become, I guess, a little bit more aware that those, and that's why those scriptures and these type of texts have, have stood the test of time, you're right? at two and a half thousand years, you know, it's, it's, that's incredible. Like no one's going to think about what I'm going to say after two minutes, you know, never mind 2000 years. Right. So I think that's, a, that's a extremely, um, I think that's important to acknowledge that. So those ideas permeating it, and that's the power of philosophy, right? That's the power mm -hmm. of, uh, allegories, great stories, is to show truth in different ways, is to make people think. Um, and I guess, yeah, is, is, is us to question, you know, maybe the way that we live our lives, to question our truth, right? And I guess to wrap this up, because we are getting on, you know, getting- uh, Can I have one more? Good. Yeah, I found this interesting thing. Um, it's actually been criticized by Hannah Arendt, but there's a guy as a philosopher, a philosopher called, um, 
forget his first name, Heidegger, a German philosopher from the 1930s, he actually became a Nazi. But he his argument for the allegory of the cave was here it says that the essence of truth is a way of be of being. The essence of truth is a way of being and not of being an object. So it's he had he had this thing called being in time. So he was almost like finding the truth would create more of a purpose and you know individuality in yourself rather than just being a commodity among society. And that's I'll wrap that up there. Yeah, especially your own truth, where it's you know, you come to that through your own um through your own discourse. Um so what okay. happens to the what happens to the um the the martyred philosopher does he become like a jesus <laughs> the the uh the prisoner that comes back into the cave you mean that was his last question yeah, yeah. what happens yeah. to him that's a great question i don't know well he gets killed it's right there in the text right in front of us all well it's killed yeah. so i think that's I guess, the implication yeah yeah so well yeah he's he's a wounded uh hostilely acted upon and ultimately killed um by these people the martyr okay and so yeah so what is this search for knowledge so is is in the end we have we wrap up this story in this way that this 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 path of enlightenment that, that we have this guy who breaks free who doesn't want to learn the new he comes out and he wants to run back in the cave and then he's forced out of the cave who is forcing him but then he goes through these new experiences uh whatever they may be and he starts to see it as a a higher purpose a higher understanding and enlightenment um light being of course the the one of the prime metaphors here um and then he goes back he feels this need to share this knowledge with the other which only makes everybody in the cave uncomfortable, feel stupid, and eventually think he's crazy. And so he dies, ultimately, just like Socrates. So what is Plato trying to tell us with this, this, this closure to the story about the pursuit of knowledge? What is his intention, right? What is, what is he trying to tell us? Like, is it worth it? Is death, if, it. death if death is the outcome, for the, the main character, so to speak. Uh, this is like a heroic story, right? It's the story mm. of the hero that tries to save and redeem the people uh, in the cave, but is killed by the people in the cave because he creates such discomfort uh, and basically says that what they know is wrong. And it's then inherent in the text. Him. It's inherent in the text. He, he must have touched a few people in the cave that saw him as someone that, you know, uh, was a little bit more enlightened than everyone else. You know, you know, Plato was next to him and, and he saw him get killed and he's like, hang on, I was learning a lot of stuff from that guy. Why did you kill him? And then Plato goes off in his own little sec, uh, you know, clique and he does his thing just, just like Jesus gets killed and all his you know, apostles go out and they start writing books and it spreads through the world. His, his sacrifice was the enlightenment for the rest of the world maybe well yeah and it's the fear of change like people don't like change and people that hold on to certain ideologies and and we buy into certain lifestyles and ideas and it's very hard not everyone has the the humble discourse or disposition to say okay well maybe i was wrong you know maybe i spent that 40 years of my life 
uh, wasting it on television and, and drinking beer every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday and Monday. And you notice too, there's actually two forms of light, right? There's the light of the fire, which is like a weaker kind of mad main light. And then there's the, the light of the sun, which is obviously a lot stronger. And, you know, that metaphor seems to be like, the, the sun is obviously the purer, more natural, more organic light, right? So it's interesting comparing those two types of light. You know, I think, you know, I guess what's some takeaways for this? Like, you know, to, to wrap this up, I guess, what would you, how, how, how would you, what can you tell someone about, you know, what's the message from this, you know, as, as you guys are saying? And I think the message for that one message is as a takeaway, you can't change the, you might not be able to change everybody and change the world, but you can definitely uh, reach your own potential and you can definitely look for your own light and be an example. Um, and I think we need to be respectful of other people's ideologies and, and realities. And I think that once we're aware of that, uh, as long as we're, the individual is making uh, informed decisions that are creative based on their own truths that they seem to be as best at the time then we shouldn't judge them we shouldn't judge them but at the same time we need to be open i think to the possibility that everything that we think is right perhaps it could be wrong and that's pretty scary to think about that change change takes time and um if you look at socrates he kind of he kind of egged on the jury when when they were uh, putting putting him on court. You know, they said you're on trial for this, you're on trial for that. And he goes, "I'm only helping you guys out. You know, you guys owe me free meals for life, kind of thing." He took the piss out of them. He told them, "I'm doing you guys a favor." And it's I don't want to offend any Christianity here or anything but that. But didn't Jesus go through the, the the temple and throw the tables up and the chairs up and you know, he kind of wasn't that part of why they, they put him on the crucifix kind of thing. The Pharisees. Sort no, of, it's, it's all no. ideology. It's all ideological. There were no throwing okay. tables or stuff okay. like that. Uh, it's like, don't, don't no, do this in my, my father's temple. No, it's, 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 it's the disruption of the norm. Mm. It is, it mm. is threatening to the aristocracy, uh, to the, the, previous ideology Mm. which was judaism right and so he um was while he was educated in uh in the judeo uh teachings he's he was uh you could call him a jewish or jew or whatever uh but he was a person educated uh Mm. in that time and he saw a lot of flaws in it, right? And he too goes out into the wilderness and he too mm. goes to separate himself from the, the the cave, so to speak. So society is the cave, right? Like, and, and being, we are so influenced by each other. Mindset. Uh, we're social beings. We, we transmit energy, we transmit information. And to get closer to God, the idea was to separate yourself from all those. Now, he was challenging a very powerful clergy, uh, which then eventually threatened uh, uh, to also disrupt Rome or the empire of the time, or at least mm. that's what mm. they can, at least that's what they convinced Rome of. Uh, so yeah. just like the allegory of the cave, uh, Christ yeah. went back to the cave to enlighten the other uh, Hebrews yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, people of that time, and people started to follow him. And this made trouble. This made the elite that had control, right? That the Pharisees mm. that had con- control, mm. uh, start to feel threatened severely because what everything they've learned, 
they thought was correct. It was their reality. Now you have mm. one of them that thinks he's got a better reality. Yeah. So like mm. he ended up getting whacked. Right. So yeah, it wasn't any type of physical throwing of tables or hurting people. He was a healer. He was, he was above and beyond. He was, I, I don't want to get too far into it, but basically he was a disruptor, just like John the Baptist, who was his cousin and yeah, his, yeah, yeah. one of his teachers, they were there the to apostles. disrupt. They, they were radical in the sense oh. of disruption, right? To disrupt society, to shake the foundations of the world at that time. Um, mm. And that's that's the whole story. So I think what Plato is saying is that anybody that attempts to disrupt the, the prisoners of the cave uh, can eventually be killed like this if the disruption if the disruption is bad enough um mm. but i we left this out but i'm really curious as to who the free people are in the back remember there are two walls the wall at the front of the cave with the reflection in the shadows then there's a wall behind the people and there's a fire and then there's the shadows right the upper the upper part so who are these people and i think that they are very important in the story we haven't asked as steven said the fire is mm. man-made it's men stoking this fire and then mm. weirdly uh, projecting, allowing, like, why aren't they stopping to help the prisoners? They are trying to control these people. Yeah, that would be uh, like so I think maybe very, gov like government, I think. And maybe those mm. are the people that ultimately killed the disruptor, mm. right? These people mm. pulling mm. the strings behind the scenes, the ones we don't see, we only see their shadows, you guys. Yeah. We don't know anything yeah. about them except yeah, for yeah, that yeah, they're yeah. moving. They're moving, they have objects that are, you know, like things they built, is what and, they're carrying, right? And are things they decorated and they're carrying. It's like this kind of torture, like kind of like, anyways, I, we never talked about those people. And I think they're very important. And uh, I think that we could discuss that either in another time or, yeah. um, but I think this story can go on. Like we, there's so much to take out of this story. Just yeah, just really quickly, the disruptors is a good point because we take for granted right now, if you if you disagree with the government or the president, everyone can just get on social media and say whatever they want. You know, 50 years ago, you couldn't, you didn't have a voice to do that. Not and President you, Trump. Sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I had to do that. Well, yeah. Well, I'm sorry. No, no, that's, that's cool. Oh, um, yeah. I'll sidestep, sidestep that bullet. Um, but yeah, like it's, it's kind of, if you're in a system, like reading any kind of historical text or reading a play, um, like for example, the crucible, um, if you're going against an ideology or the government, it's a big deal. You know, it really is because in the old days they would they would check your library record to see what books you were reading. Oh God, yeah. So it, it's 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 threatening behavior. It's kind of antisocial, and it's it's going to be it's part of the pact mentality is to work together in the group. When you have someone in the group that disagrees with the leader, mm. disagrees with the harmony of the group, that person, well, you everybody knows what happens to that person. You know, if they cause enough problems, that's why. Um, I think that's why we have a fear of public speaking. But anyway, I think there's some great points there. And I think we can wrap this up by, I don't know, what's some final thoughts about what's some final thoughts about what someone can take from this in the sense of maybe the light and and what is the allegory really mean in the modern day, I think is is probably the best connection for the listener. I'll say one thing, there's one footnote in the Perseus.com website, and he said that um this particular allegory was the first time any philosopher actually um, uh, stated the idea of actually going out into the world and trying to change the world. So they're saying that before that, 
any kind of philosophical group would keep to themselves. They'd have their own, you know, the Pythagoreans or pre-Socratics, they would have their own philosophical groups, but they would mind their own business. You can come find them if you want, but they wouldn't go out into the world and come find you. So there could be some truth to that. It could be. Um, yeah, how about you tell us the it, answer? Well, I was just going to say, uh, like I said, this, these, these discussions can go on forever, but I like to make connections mm. between various texts, um, uh, just as many as possible, really. But again, um, well, we know that is, Israelites did go out into the world and they actually did teach their teachings to people and actually allowed for conversion earlier on, as long as the, the servants could become uh, part of the family, but they had to be, they had to serve for a specific uh, period, then they had to be circumcised, and then they had to be indoctrinated, uh, or taught to follow God and not any nation or, uh, you know, um, idol. Uh, they had to be separated from idolatry idolatry Jeez, i can't even say that word but yeah so like i think okay we always give credit to the first person mark zuckerberg mm. created facebook no he didn't mm. he actually was mm -hmm. just smart enough to jump on it and patent it before anybody yeah. like he's doing right now with meta you know he's doing it with meta like you got this metaverse thing happening all of a sudden he changes his name to get away from the problems of facebook to meta it's pretty ironic pretty creative pretty intentional they wrote it down first so, you know, we can give them credit, but they don't, they're actually not the first. I, I would say that the first was hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of years before these guys. Mm. Like, it's mm. just that the, the past gets buried by the present. You it's know? not so, history, though, because it wasn't written down. But, okay, let's finish this on Steve's note. What were you saying? Uh, what is the light for today? Yeah, I question? guess like what what can we what can the modern um, what can the modern individual learn from the allegory of the cave? And I'll just say it again. I think that we we should be our own our own light, and we should be we should be listening to ourselves and be our own ethical compass. And I think you know we've got to be tolerant and respectful that people don't care about my adventures through Thailand or Colombia or through Europe, and that's totally cool, you know. Like, but I, the question is. Uh, you know, the question I would ask people, are you living your own life? Are you doing what you want to do? Are you becoming the best version of who you are? Are you satisfied with the type of life you list, you know, you're Me? living? Then, then I think that's it. If, if people can say yes to those questions, they've found their own light. And I think good on them. And it doesn't really matter what they do. Um, but I think if they say no to those questions, maybe they need some introspection and think, okay, maybe um, how can I perhaps start living that more aligned with, with what I really want or who I really am. For me, it would be like finding a career that I could do all day and still come home with enough energy to want to improve my um, skill set in that particular career or vocation. That to me would be kind of enlightening, I think. Yeah, I think I would say that uh that yeah that what does the light represent well you know it's this is an allegory so it can be interpreted in so many different ways and uh what's true today might not be true tomorrow when we reread this text um given our experiences and the times but um i would say that you know there are there is light and wisdom that's created by man right and it's oftentimes flawed and abstract and not very clear um but then there's the natural light and so maybe maybe um 
you know, I'm not sure. I think both both provide a purpose, but I think that like Stephen said, like you have to find what works for you. However, we can never forget our de- interdependence on one another. And to be wise or, or um, righteous is to be kind and loving and accepting to all, um, dis- regardless of their beliefs. And you know what? People are going to disagree with us till the day we die. People disagreed with Plato. People disagreed with Jesus. People disagreed with Muhammad. People disagree with their parents every day. I disagree with my friends and colleagues every day. So this is going to be disagreement. I think embrace them both. Um, yeah, find your own light. Uh, know that there is wisdom and light in man-made things, but there's also a lot of wisdom in nature. So, so go, you know, I think everybody should take a retreat once in a while and silence the, the noise from the cave, right? The repercussion echoes on the walls that permeate our cell phones, newspaper articles, the movies that are being produced, the news channels. You got to cut that free to separate yourself, castrate, if you will, and go off into the wilderness with the sun, right? So I think that meditation, people need to listen more and be quiet more, but ultimately they need to find their path and know that they can learn from each other, but their true truth is in nature within them. Yeah, interesting. That's interesting. Great argument. Um, and that's, I'm looking at my notes and I haven't really, I noticed that I haven't really used the word wisdom in the sense of the sun and the light and illumination. I've referred to it as knowledge and, and awareness and consciousness, but I think wisdom fits in there well as well, because wisdom is another form of, of understanding the world. And it's, it's, it's kind of talking about wisdom, which we don't have time to do that, but you know, it's, it's a process of moving through knowledge and then through experiences knowledge reflection and then getting you know leaving sorry nostalgia failure failure yeah and then then moving and then accepting accepting it and then having this deeper understanding that you can only really have through those experiences so that's really powerful too but guys i think we could wrap this baby up i feel we've actually we've we've covered up a pretty big um portion of the republic in itself in this podcast so i think we've done pretty well and i wrote a, f- a final kind of statement and this is kind of what i got from perusing it this morning uh the final conclusion that i can derive from the text is that justice and goodness are that in which people uphold their duties in life and leave others to theirs that seems to be the the, the main uh, thesis statement for the the republic yeah, that's a nice wrap-up sentence. Mm. Yeah, thanks. But for I think that. we need to sort of adopt that to the modern day rather to Plato's day. Yeah, and I think both, you know, understanding how both, um, you know, understanding the context of both, right? The historical context and the modern relevance as well. Mm. That, that's a, a good Maybe way. We, we wouldn't have had that if he didn't say those in those days, you know? Mm. Yeah, exactly. That's the idea is permeating.